may be seated. We well, can turn with me your Bibles to the book of 1 John chapter 5. As we come to our second last sermon in 1 John. We're going to look at verses 16 and 17 this morning. Prayer for a sinning brother. Uh, but I will read verse 13 to the end to set the context. This is the one you were waiting for, right? The sin unto death. You wanted to know what that means, so here it is today. So let's begin reading at verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin and there is sin not leading to death. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Well, let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we are thankful that you still speak to your people. You speak through your word and you speak through preaching as your, the word goes forth and your spirit works with that word. And so we ask and pray again that your word would go forth and not return void, that your word would run swiftly and be glorified. And we're thankful for that. The word of God is not chained. And we are thankful that we can be encouraged, we can be uplifted, and we can grow in our understanding of you. I grow in our understanding of what sin is, but also grow in our understanding of the sins that you do forgive. And we're thankful that there are many sins that you forgive. And we pray that you give us illumination as we deal with a difficult text and a difficult subject. We pray that it would be edifying your for your people, instructive for your people, uh, as you teach us how we ought to pray. And we pray that if they're in here today who do not know you, we pray that you would save their souls, give them new life, we pray. And so be with us now by your spirit, and we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, the Bible does speak about gently correcting a brother or sister who is overtaken by sin. And while we believe that, sometimes in practice, it's diff difficult to know when we speak to someone or even who should do the speaking towards uh, to that brother or sister. But there is one thing that all of God's people can do when they see a brother or sister in sin, and that thing is to pray. And that's exactly what John says for us today here in 1 John verse 16 and verse 17 as well. Remember, John has assured his people that they have eternal life in Christ Jesus. But John is also a realist. He understands that the people of God on this side of heaven still struggle with sins and still struggle with remaining corruption. So he wants to encourage them. He wants to remind them of who they are in Christ Jesus. That is where life is. They have communion with God through Jesus Christ. And because of that standing before God through Jesus Christ, they also have communion with one another. 
And remember, there were heretics who were threatening this. There were men who were threatening the church at Ephesus based upon what they said concerning Jesus Christ. Their problem and their issue was Christological. They denied that Jesus is the Son of God, and they denied that Jesus came in the flesh, and many other things as well. They even denied that, there, uh, that, uh, that they had the nature of sin, a sin nature, but also that they engaged in sinful Acts. And so John writes to correct, John writes to encourage, John writes to remind them and give them that assurance that they have eternal life in Christ Jesus. We are in the final section of his letter, and there's really kind of four subsections. The main idea is in verse 13, to know you have eternal life. The second subsection is dealing with prayer in light of that, and we're still dealing with prayer this morning. And then there's some final thoughts regarding, uh, regarding the Son. And so the problem is very clear in verses 16 and 17, and that's the problem of sin. And the problem, we could say, is twofold. When we see a brother sinning, and then also dealing with the sin that leads to death. So there's two issues related to sin here. Sin, when we see a brother sinning, but also the idea of the sin that leads to death. So the brother who sins is a reality for this fallen world. John knows this. He knows where forgiveness lies, but he also knows that those who have eternal life still sin. But then he also gives this real distinction, sins that do not lead to death versus a sin that does lead to death. Now, this is a bit of a conundrum, and perhaps when we read verses 16 and 17, that is where our mind goes. But we must remember that this primary focus of John here is prayer, namely who we're praying for, namely considering a brother who is struggling or a sister who is struggling and praying for them. That is the main point. That is the main thrust. In verses 16 and 17, John provides a specific application about how believers can pray to God for one another. How can believers call upon God according to his will while it's praying for a brother or sister that they see in sin? So the main idea is prayer today, and we'll look at this under two headings. First of all, we'll see an intercession for a brother, verse 16. Then secondly, we'll see an explanation about sin in verses 16 and 17. So really an intercession and an explanation or we could say the sins not leading to death and sin leading to death. But intercession and explanation, those are the two main points this morning. So let's first look at an intercession for a brother in the first parts of verse 16. Now again, context is important here because it's still part of this idea of prayer. In verses 14 and 15, we saw John talk about how a Christian has boldness before God, before the throne of grace, even now. We can have boldness on the day of judgment. We don't have to fear that day of judgment because of Christ, but we can have boldness now before the throne of grace because of our great high priest. The Christian should never fear coming to the throne of grace. The Christian should never worry because Christ's finished work is sufficient for his people. And we saw there how he said, whatever one asks according to the will of God, whatever one asks according to the will of God, God hears. That if we want to die to sin and we ask God for specific help, God hears and God will answer that. And so then he goes then to deal with a specific way in which we can ask according to the will of God. And so he goes on to say in verse 16, he says, if anyone sees a brother in sin. 
Isn't forgiveness a promise God has given to his people? Isn't that part of his will? And if it's part of his will for us, it also ought to be part of praying according to his will for others. So verse 16, if anybody sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death. So we see here sinning a sin not leading to death. And notice the one who is sinning. If anyone sees his brother... We don't discriminate, includes ladies as well, includes sisters, brothers and sisters. If we see a Christian sinning, again, John is very realistic. John understands God's people still struggle with remaining corruption. He's talked about this already. A lot of what we see at the end of chapter five here is conclusion, recapping things that have been taught already. And we saw how in chapter one, verses five to two, two, we see there, If we say that we have not sinned, we make God to be a liar and his word is not in us. We must recognize that sin is part of this world, that we are born into a, in a sinful state, in a sinful nature, and that we really do engage in actual sins, which is something the heretics were denying. And if you don't understand sin, you don't understand what it is. If you don't see your need, then you're going to have no need for Christ Jesus. That's why we have to preach the bad news. You're a wretch, you're sinful, you're not good, that you might see the goodness of Christ, who was sinless, who is perfect, who was righteous, that in him there is mercy and forgiveness. But even after we are saved and redeemed, as we struggle, we still struggle with sin. And so John says in chapter 2, verse uh, 1, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. In the Christian life, we are putting sin to death daily. But what if we sin? Which we do. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So John is realistic. John understands. And let's be honest. Sometimes you and I are not very realistic about the corruption of God's people. We often have these high expectations that the people of God must be perfect. And we're Calvinists. We recognize that God saved us. God, uh, God did all the work. But yet so often we have these high standards for others. Now, brethren, I'm not saying we excuse sin. We have to be gracious, don't we? Christ has been very gracious to us. God is very long-suffering with us. And we have to understand and give, gives us perspective to see that the people of God might do terrible things. Again, when they do that terrible thing, they need to remedy it and find forgiveness and repent and all that sort of good stuff. But when we see it happen, we just don't write them off right away, right? Usually that's what we do. Someone sins, we write them off right away rather than recognizing that we must be patient. Now in time, it might, evidences might emerge that they were never believers in the first place. But yet nonetheless, true believers, true people of God can and do often very much sin. And so that's the implication. If anyone sees his brother, anyone sees his sister, notice sinning a sin which does not lead to death. But look at the occasion. So the one sinning is a brother, but look at the occasion. Sees. Sees his brother. What's the implication there? It is a sin that is visible. Not necessarily a private or a pet sin, which all of God's people struggle with. But it seems to be something that is very obvious, something that is very, very clear. 
And when it comes to uh, dealing with someone with that, when it comes to dealing with interpersonal issues and interpersonal sins, the Bible speaks on these things. If someone sins against you, what are you supposed to do? Well, you go and deal with it. If you sin against someone, you go and deal with it. If someone sins against you, you go and uh, seek to remedy the situation. We see that in Matthew chapter 18. If someone has something against you, you go and speak to them. That is, I think, what is in view in James 5 as well. We confess our sins if we've wronged someone. If there's this issue with someone, we go and confess it to them and we deal with it. It doesn't mean we have to confess every private little sin to one another. 1 John 1, 9 says what? Confess your sins to whom? To God. Confess your sins to God and he is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Do you see the difference? When you struggle with pet sins and private sins and sins that are kept to yourself in your mind, go and confess it to God. But if you actually do sin against someone, then you have to go and deal with it. And so notice when you see a brother in sin. I think this is a good caution against sometimes the people of God being overbearing or being a busybody thinking we need to be the moral police for everyone's life. Sometimes we think that because of Matthew 18. But again, Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, right? Now in Galatians chapter 6, it does say there, if you see a brother overtaken in sin, those who are spiritual, those who are mature, those who are, DR, uh, those who are perhaps a little bit uh, more seasoned in the Christian life might be the ones to do that very thing. There is wisdom required. And perhaps it might need to be a close friend. I think Henry has some good wisdom here, especially as he's, he's commenting on James 5. He says, but, when, but uh, then we are not to think that James puts us upon telling everything that we are conscious is amiss in ourselves or in one another. I've often talked about how I get very angry at people who cut me off on the road, right? It would be ridiculous if I drove up beside them, told them to roll down their window and say, I'm sorry for you know, getting angry at you in my mind. That is a ridiculous sort of thing. They would think I'm weird. You would think I'm weird. I would think I'm weird because it's ridiculous. There is some wisdom with all of this. First John 1, we confess it to God. I probably should confess it. I too tried to confess it and ask for forgiveness from my family for getting angry. But we don't have to drive up to everybody and seek forgiveness in that way because you would never have a life. You would just be asking for forgiveness all the time because of all the things that I know you think in your mind about other people and the things I know I think in my mind about other people as well. But James goes on to say, but so far as confession is necessary to our reconciliation with as such are at variance with us or for gaining information in any point of conscience and making our own spirits quiet and easy so far, we should be ready to confess our faults. We should be ready to. And sometimes also it may be of good use to Christians to disclose their peculiar weaknesses and infirmities to one another where there are great intimacies and friendships. You don't have to confess everything to everybody all the time, do you? Their trust can be built among people and you don't have to tell everybody everything. But if there's someone who is close to you, you wish to do that, there's wisdom there. 
and where they may help each other by their prayers to obtain pardon of their sins and power against them. We get all that from the word see, don't we? See. Anyone who sees his brother. So it's a very clear issue, a very clear thing, a visible thing to all. That is what is in view here. Anyone sees his brother. And notice the sin that is committed. A sin which does not lead to death. Now, this is very difficult, isn't it? Especially the sin leading to death part. Now, I'm going to unpack a few things here, and then we'll unpack more things under our second point. Uh, But one thing is pretty clear. John doesn't explain it, which implies they knew exactly what he meant. (laughs) They understood very clearly what he was talking about. But it's hard for us, you know, 2,000 years later, what does he mean by sins not leading to death and sin leading to death? And there's a lot of ink spilt I mean, the Old Testament does talk about sins of commission, the ones we know we're committing, and the sins of omission, the things we don't know that we're committing. Uh, so they, they think that could be in view. I don't think so. I mean, Roman Catholics like to drop the mortal and venial sins. I don't think that is in view at all either. Because again, notice who is sinning. It is a brother. Christians cannot commit the sin leading to death. I'm going to say that again. True Christians cannot commit the sin leading to death. True Christians have life in Jesus Christ. We see that in 5.13. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son, that you may know that you have eternal life. There is that comfort that we are already alive in Christ Jesus. There is that comfort that we cannot commit the sin which leads to death. And he's talking about spiritual death talking about dying forever, talking about receiving punishment spiritually, eternally, for violating the law of God. Now again, what this sin is, I'll unpack more, what these are, I'll unpack more under the second point. Uh, But we know from 1 John 3, all sin is lawlessness. We know from 1 John 5, all sin is unrighteousness. But the point we need to highlight here is again, to reiterate that the people of God will do terrible things. David, anybody? Gideon? I mean, you read all your Old Testament heroes. I mean, they all do something terrible and vile, and we go, we might question the moment. Are they actually saved or not? But the reality is we see that David repents. We see, you know, you know Gideon's in, in, in Hebrews 11. I mean, they're terrible men, but they're all looking ahead to a great Christ. They're all awful people looking ahead to a perfect Savior. And yes, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4, yes, we can fall under God's fatherly displeasure. Hebrews chapter 12. But thankfully, Christ's work is sufficient and he will not let his people fall. We will repent. We will be renewed. We will be preserved until the end. So if anyone sees, so it's a brother sinning, it's a sin that is seen, and it's a sin which does not lead to death. And notice what one does. He asks. He prays. Again, this is something we can all do for a brother in a sin that is observable. We ought to pray generally uh, for forgiveness for ourselves and forgiveness for others. But we see very clear here, this is intercessory prayer. This is what intercessory prayer looks like. Praying on behalf of someone, especially when we see a very clear sin in uh, in, uh, in their life. And the language is what we see in verses 14 and 15. We ask. We ask anything. So if we see a brother in sin, we can ask 
and God hears. Will not God answer that prayer? Will not God answer the prayer if we pray for a brother in sin that God would restore them, God would restrain them, God would help them? Will not God answer that prayer? And we see he will, God will give him life for those who commit sin, not leading to death. Now, once again, this is a difficult, I mean, this two verses, a lot of difficult things here, but what does it mean when he talks about he will give him life? I think the New King James does well by adding the capital H there. It is God who will give life. We pray to God and God is the one who will give life. And there's kind of two ways to take this. One, it refers to the future life. It's an assurance that God will give him that resurrected life. And when we see the language of confidence used in 1 John, it's used four times. Two times it is used with respect to our future life, the boldness we can have on that day. So that future life, this resurrected life could be in view. We see Lazarus is not sleeping unto death in, um, in uh, John eleven four, And we see resurrection uh, themes there. So that could be in view. But perhaps better it is to provide comfort for the one who already has life. I mean, let's be honest. When we sin, we need to go to Christ. But if you're like one who doubts, if you're like a normal, like a regular human being sometimes, we can struggle. We're sinning. We're going through a certain sin. We're struggling with that sin. We're confessing. We might have doubts that creep in. There might be times where our heart condemns us. And that's exactly what John says in 1 John 3.20. If our heart condemns us, God is greater. If we talk to ourselves, we're like, I'm sinning, I'm struggling with this, I'm concerned about my salvation, all good signs, by the way. If you're concerned about yours, if you're wondering, have I committed the sin leading to death? A, no, and B, that's a good thing. Because the one who commits the sin not or leading to death is not concerned about it at all. And so we need to have that encouragement. We need to have that holy conversation with ourselves. If our heart condemns us, God is greater and he knows all things. If our heart then does not condemn us, if we have that assurance, we can have that confidence toward God. So it seems to be this comfort that God will provide. But notice how God does it through the prayers of his saints. God works through means, doesn't he? It's not the strength of our prayers or the might of our prayers. It's not as though this person has lost life. But God is pleased to answer our prayers and provide encouragement to the one who needs it. To provide reassurance to the one who is downtrodden in their sin. Gill says, by which may be meant comfort. That which will revive his drooping spirits and cause him to live cheerfully and comfortably that so he may not be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow, or he shall grant a discovery of the pardon of his sin unto him, which will be as life from the dead and will give him a comfortable hope of eternal life, of his right unto it and meetness for it. He encourages the one who is downtrodden and heavy laden over his sin. What does the prayer do? We pray and God hopefully directs them to Christ. We can even direct them once again to Christ and the forgiveness that we have in him. And so the application, brethren, is clear. When you see a brother in sin or a sister in sin, pray. We don't always have to confront. We we don't always like confrontations. We need, again, wisdom. When to confront, or do we just let things be for a little bit? Maybe they'll come out of it. 
Uh, do we, again, not everybody, depending on the situation, but we all can pray for a brother or sister who is in a very observable sin. We ought to pray in general for our sanctification and everybody's sanctification, but when we see a brother or sister in sin, we ought to pray for them. God assumes we're praying. God assumes we're asking according to his will, and this is one way we can intercede for when we see a brother in sin. So that is an intercession for a brother. Let's then look secondly at an explanation about sin, or an explanation about a specific type of sin in 16d to 17. Notice, he says there is sin leading to death. Notice he does not say a brother has committed sin leading to death. He's just acknowledging something. There is sin that does lead to death. And again, this is difficult for us. He doesn't really expound on what this means. Uh, so these are the categories that he gives us. Sin not leading to death and a sin that does lead to death. And I think the context and then the rest of biblical, uh, the New Testament helps us understand, hopefully uh, helps us understand what this, what this is. So we're talking about life and death. We're talking about... Uh, where life is found, and as you've read, and as we've read even recently in 1 John 5, where is life? Life is in Christ Jesus. Where is forgiveness of sins? It is in Christ Jesus. What are the heretics doing? Denying Christ Jesus. They're called antichrists for a reason, because they deny that Jesus is the Son of God, and they deny that Jesus is the Christ. That seems to be what one aspect or the main aspect of what this sin is. It has to do with Christology. It has to do with Jesus Christ and what one says. It has to do with unbelief. It is Christological, isn't it? And a lot of times people come to this and bring up their own ideas. What's the sin leading to death? And they talk about really awful sins, really vile sins, really heinous sins. Suicide. Is suicide the sin leading to death or the unforgivable sin? It is not. That would be a sad way for a Christian to go, brethren, but that is not the unforgivable sin. Is it being LGBTQ++++ whatever? No, it's not. Committing fraud, no. Adultery, no. Sabbath breaking, no. Perjurer, no. Murderer, no. Denial, no. Peter found forgiveness, didn't he, for his denials. Those are not the unforgivable sins. They're heinous, they're awful, they're terrible. But sometimes true people of God do terrible things. I believe Peter was a true believer when he denied the Lord. He was fearful and he was wrong. And yet he sought Christ and found forgiveness in him but one has to find forgiveness in christ judas does not do that by the way judas does not find forgiveness in the savior he doesn't look to him peter does that is where our sins are forgiven and that is where there is life and so this sin unto death primarily is christological what one says about jesus if you deny who jesus is none of your sins can be forgiven if you deny who Jesus is, there is this sin that leads unto death. And certainly, this squares with the idea of the unforgivable sin, which we see in Mark 3 and Matthew 12 and Luke's gospel as well. This blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, all the sins of men are forgiven who believe on Christ, but there is an unforgivable sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What's happening there? Again, it is Christological. Now, John isn't necessarily equating the two together, but 
many hist- uh, theologians have equated the two together, and maybe that's why he didn't have to unpack it uh, as much in First John. But the ideas are clear in the sense that they're both Christological. What were the Pharisees doing? The Pharisees were attributing the power of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit to whom? To Beelzebub. It was Christological. Once again, they denied who Jesus is. They denied what he was doing. They denied where his power comes from. And so these false teachers in 1 John, the Antichrist in 1 John, and the Pharisees and what they say indicate, again, it is Christological. Now, there is an implication if one does not believe on Christ, they will die in their trespasses and sins, and spiritual death is in view, and it is the case that all the other sins we mentioned, if they don't believe on Christ, they will die and be punished because of those sins. That is true. But all of those sins can be forgiven if they look to Christ. Not believing on Christ cannot be forgiven. Not believing on Christ will lead to death because life is only found in him. And if you do not have him, you do not have life. So it is Christological. Then a second thing to highlight about what it is is it's usually malicious and usually arises from those who were in. And I use air quotes on purpose there. They weren't actually in, but they thought they were in. Think about it. They're not just your everyday heathen, are they? We're not talking about your everyday heathen here who's just walking down the road, buying their groceries. They're not talking about them. It is malicious and it is hostile. They don't just let, uh, let things go. We see this with the Pharisees. They were the people of God or part of the people of God. They didn't just let it go. They weren't, again, your everyday sort of whatever, just want, no, they killed the Lord of glory. They crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's important to highlight that the sin unto death includes maliciousness. It includes a conscious denial and attack by those who are in. And the same thing is true with respect to 1 John. There were men who went out from us, but they were not of us. So there are those who clearly tasted, have not believed. They're like perhaps that seed sown on on, on, um, a shallow soil and they spring up and they're burned or among the thorns or they're scattered. They might look like it, but then they cause the most damage as they leave. That is probably what the sin unto death is. So it is Christological, it is malicious, and it's a conscious attack by those who are in. So I guess three things. Christological, malicious, and hostile, and it is usually brought about by those who were once in. Again, not your everyday heathen, although if an everyday heathen doesn't believe on Christ, they will die in their trespasses and sins. That seems to be what is in view with respect to the context, with respect to the language, with respect to uh, the, the rest of the New Testament, all those things seem to be what the sin unpleading to death is. But then John goes on to give some instruction or perhaps clarification. Now, this is where sometimes we misread this. Does he say you should never pray for them? He doesn't say that, does he? It's kind of more of an acknowledgement. He kind of is sort of saying that, but it's not a foregone conclusion. He just says, I do not say that you should, he should pray about that. There's no command here. He's just making a comment. He's making an acknowledgement. It's a bit of a, I'm not saying you should. I'm not talking about that sort of thing. We pray for our believer, our fellow believers. I mean, Jesus, John 17, he says, I do not pray for the world. 
He prays for those who are his. Jesus, when he intercedes and when he prays, he's praying for his people. He is not praying for everyone. But it is not an explicit command, is it? It's not necessarily saying you cannot pray for an apostate, but it's kind of humanly speaking very difficult, isn't it? He says, I do not say that he should pray about that very thing. I think Gil provides some wisdom here talking about this. And one thing we need to highlight is that it is very hard to determine in time and space. I mean, there's there's that criteria there, but time and space, it can be very hard to determine. But Gill says, the apostle does not expressly forbid to pray for the forgiveness of this sin. Yet what he says amounts unto it. He gives no encouragement to it or any hopes of succeeding, but rather the reverse. And indeed, where this sin is known or can be known, it is not to be prayed for because it is irremissible. But as it is a most difficult point to know when a man has sinned it, the apostle expresses himself with great caution. And think about when we pray for the forgiveness of sins, there is a sin that cannot be forgiven. So even that praying for that sin is futile, isn't it? Because it cannot be forgiven according to the will of God. Because it is unbelief. The only way to have all your sins forgiven is in Jesus Christ. You cannot ask for someone to be forgiven if they do not believe on Christ Jesus. That sin of unbelief cannot be forgiven. And so that could be in view here. Not saying if in time and space you see a loved one who may or may not have this. It's, again, hard. It cannot jump to conclusions too quickly with respect to this. Time tells, time is a friend. It tells us these things. But, you know, not saying you can't necessarily pray for them, but they uh, pray that they be saved. But this sin specifically cannot be forgiven. Salvation is only with the Lord. Salvation is impossible with man. It is only with God, but one who does not believe on Christ cannot be saved. So he does give that clarification. I do not say that he should pray about that. Again, difficult section, difficult with respect to what it is, um, but again, it's not an outright prohibition to not pray for one you might observe uh, in this present world. Then he kind of finishes on a bit of a explanatory note, but also a positive note. 17, all unrighteousness is sin. Once again, we get a clear definition of what sin is. What is the essence? Lawlessness, 1 John 3, 4, and 1 John 5, 17. All unrighteousness is sin. God's people struggle with sin, but their life is no longer characterized by it. We have our righteousness in Christ Jesus. Again, righteousness and unrighteousness is clearly connected with the law of God. Uh, but all unrighteousness is sin. It violates the law of God, but there is mercy and forgiveness in Christ Jesus. And thankfully, there is sin not leading to death. Again, brethren, if we just hone in, and I did hone in on it because everybody has questions about what the sin leading to death is, but notice all the positive things about it too. Sin not leading to death. There is sin that does not lead to death. And if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you have murdered someone, there is forgiveness. His blood is sufficient. If you have engaged in wicked adultery, there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. If you stole a bajillion dollars, 
There is mercy and forgiveness in Christ. If you lie all the time, if you perjured yourself in court, there is mercy and forgiveness in Christ. There are spectacular sins that people engage in, but there is mercy and forgiveness in Christ. They need to look to him, to believe upon him, to find comfort in him, because 1 Corinthians 6 highlights this very thing, that there is great salvation for people who might think they're too far gone. He talks about how they're neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Isn't there comfort that Jesus forgives all sorts of sinners for all sorts of sins that they commit? Because there is sin that does not lead to death. And there is forgiveness in Christ our Lord. And if you're an unbeliever here today, if you do not believe on Christ, you will die in your trespasses and sins. But if you believe on him, you shall have mercy and forgiveness. And he can and does forgive people of all sorts of sins. And if you're a believer, look at what we deserved. We deserve to die spiritually forever. But there's mercy in Jesus Christ. And if a fellow saint, a fellow brother or sister in Christ, whom Christ died is, has died for, is struggling in their sin, we need to pray for them. We need to be gracious to them. We need to be kind with them. We need to support them. We need to be watchful in ourselves. But know that if we do sin, we have an advocate. If we do sin, we have forgiveness. And if we do struggle, there is Christ who is our advocate with the Father. There is life and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And for those in Christ, the sins that we commit do not lead to death. Well, let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, there are some difficult things for us to consider in parts of your word, and yet we are thankful that we have men, on, men of old that we can lean upon. Your context clearly helps us in dealing with various things, and so we are thankful for the forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of vile, awful, wicked sins in thought, word, and deed. And we're thankful that some of the worst sinners have found great salvation in Christ, and they are great trophies to show forth your might and show forth your power. I pray that those who are here today who do not know you, I pray that they would be part of your trophies of grace as well, that you would show them their sin, that you would persuade them by your spirit and with the word to show them their sin and to show them that Christ can forgive them of their sins and that they might lay hold of him and find life and everlasting peace in him. And I pray that for all of your saints here today, I pray that we would be watchful in our own, against our own sins, be on guard and be quick to confess them to you. If we've wronged one another, help us to be quick to deal with that with one another. And we pray that you just help us to be watchful, help us to learn more, help us to grow in our understanding of you and in your word and what is pleasing in your sight. And if we do see someone in sin, help us to pray for them. Help us to be kind to them. Help us to be gracious with them. Help us to know when to over, uh, help those who are overtaken in sin. We know that if we lack wisdom, you do give it, and you give it without reproach. So thank you that you do so. 
And so as we go into the world, we pray that you would give us strength, you give us patience, you give us long-suffering, help us to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit as we walk this world. And if we do know someone uh, who is committing the sin that leads to death, uh, help us to be patient and help us to trust in your ways with respect to it. And we are thankful that there is sin that does not lead to death. So we pray that you'd be with us today. We pray that you'd be honored and glorified today. And we pray these things in the name of God.